0: Hi everyone, welcome back to China in the Caribbean podcast. Today we're going to be speaking with Dr. Bradley Merg, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Economics at Paragon University in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Sino-Cuban relations has been by far the most requested topic I've received since I started the podcast. And to do that with any nuance, you have to also go into Venezuela, U.S.S.R. and, of course, modern U.S.A. politics towards Cuba. And we're going to do just that. So, thank you so much, Dr. Berg, for joining us all from Plumpen.
1: Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: One of the pronounced differences between Caribbean foreign policy and U.S. foreign policy is Cuba, all the Caribbean countries have pretty good relationship with Cuba, but the U.S. does not, to put it mildly. So what accounts for the protracted acrimony between the U.S. and Cuba that even extends to, well, today?
1: The U.S. and Cuba, yes. Well, ultimately, it's, relations fundamentally changed following the entry of President Trump into office. And we ultimately see the rolling back of uh, the initial opening that Barack Obama engaged in uh, during the course of his presidency. Now, Obama had won around 50 percent of Cuban-American voters in Florida. And to really understand U.S.-Cuban relations, uh, we have to understand the politics of the United States and particularly the role that Florida plays as historically a key swing state. And the fact that the vast majority of the Cuban-American population resides in South, thus making them a hugely vital voting block. If Republicans lose the Cuban-American vote, they lose Florida. Obama won, essentially, or got at least half of a huge amount of the Cuban-American population. That to some degree signaled there was thought that the, Cuban, the younger Cuban-American population was changing its views and wasn't as Tied into the anti Castro views of their elders who still uh, remember life on the island before the Castro regime or came later as uh, refugees. And we ultimately see the Trump administration basically rolling back a huge amount of the, of the revisions that were made, resulting in US Cuban relations declining significantly. There was also the issue of the medical situation that still remains relatively unresolved, afflicting American diplomats at the US Embassy, the newly reopened. US Embassy in Havana, which caused uh, significant questions uh, and challenges in the relationship. And we see the protests obviously taking place uh, that, have ta- that took place in Havana and throughout the country in 20 or so different cities. A major threat, an enormous change to the regime. We haven't seen that since August 1994 when Fidel Castro was in power and was successfully able to essentially deal with the big classic example of charismatic leadership. So at this stage, what we see really is the U.S. government already having decided to put U.S.-Cuba relations on the back burner, no immediate return to the pre-Trump administration policies. Now, essentially looking at Cuba and seeing a situation where there does appear to be popular dissatisfaction, and this could really be the opportunity for serious change on the island.
0: And why are there so many Cubans and Cuban-Americans in Florida?
1: Uh, Pretty simple. It's 90 miles from Cuba. Um, It's incredibly close. Cuban-Americans settled in Florida prior, obviously, to the revolution of 1959. Some had seen the writing on the walls in advance and had already begun to move assets out of the country. But the Cuban-American community simply moved to Miami and to South Florida in general. Similar climate, already having some pre-existing ties. Initially, the view that this couldn't last forever. The idea was, uh, even in Cuba, was that the U.S. would eventually invade and that the Cuban-American exile experience would be a short one. And it has not been, obviously. The Cuban uh, Communist Party has been in power since 1959. And we have seen wave after wave of Cuban refugees coming to the United States, initially throughout the early 1960s. Uh, Then in the 80s, we saw the Marielle Boatlift. In 1994, we see another 30,000 refugees. And of course, there was the so-called wet foot, dry foot policy, where which the Obama administration eliminated, which meant that any Cuban citizen who made it to American territory, American, was automatically given residency in the path to citizenship. So yeah, this was a very significant, significant aspect of 1994 when the last round of riots occurred and, and Castro said, if you want to leave, just leave and you see people taking and trying to make it across the straits of cuba of course thousands of people died the straits it's a humanitarian tragedy the straits of cuba are not the uh, safest waterway remotely and now we're all kind of wondering well, what's going to happen this time? Are we going to see that same release valve? Castro used the ability to leave the island as a as a as a steam vent when things got too hot and people were too upset. People were allowed to go. The Mariel boat left in the early eighties, being the most classic case.
0: The nineteen nineties in Cuba was particularly chaotic. It's a huge economic crisis, and it's, it's called the special period in in Cuba. Uh, I'm wondering, what were the origins of the special period?
1: The special period roughly runs from 1991 until 2000. And it's the period where the Cuban economy basically collapses following the end of the Soviet Union. Cuba had long been uh, a client state of the Soviet Union, really in 1965, 1966, it it makes its choice of the Soviet Union over China, obviously not choosing the United States. And so when the Soviet Union falls apart, the Soviet Union is no longer able to provide those items that Cuba relies upon. And it's not, uh, the main one, of course, is oil. And this is what kept all of Cuban industry Cuba's industrialized agricultural sector, Cuba's transport system, all of this was is entirely dependent upon Soviet oil exports. And when those came to a halt, what we see is a decline in GDP of 35%, which is almost for us today, when we think about the last year or two, a GDP decline of what, two or three percent in the great financial crisis and everyone's screaming. A uh, decline of negative 35% is, is almost impossible to fathom. Imports and exports fall by 80%. Food consumptions cut back to roughly one-fifth of what it was. And the average Cuban loses about uh, nine kilos, about 20 pounds. Starvation's avoided. But there's a huge amount of hunger, there's malnutrition, and there are still long-term effects today on the Cuban population from, from this time period. And people remember it very, very, very negatively. The number of times I've spoken to Cuban economists and Cuban colleagues who've said, we're not going through that again. We went through it once and where are we doing it again. It's, it's it's simply uh, not something that we're prepared to do.
0: Okay, so I can see some clear parallels between the current economic downturn and the special period. Um, probably not as severe, but do you think the current COVID-caused crisis... Is reminding people in Cuba of the hardship of the special period.
1: It's a combination of, of multiplicity of factors. I think the first is yes, COVID has exacerbated things enormously. Cuba is way over dependent uh, on tourism, essentially, to bring in foreign currency, and we you can see that if you if you simply go to Cuba, if you go to Havana or you go to the beaches. And you see the huge mega hotels and European tourists and Canadian tourists, Russian tourists, 60,000 a year Chinese tourists coming to Cuba, all bringing hard currency with them. And this is a huge benefit for the regime. COVID killed off tourism. And just like other tourism-dependent countries, Cuba's feeling the impact but it's exacerbated by a couple of other factors the first being venezuela's decline in its ability to support cuba at the level it was supporting cuba previously at its height venezuela was exporting around 100,000 i can't recall the specific number it was something like 100 100,000 barrels of oil per day Cuba, and a significant portion of that, about half of that, was sold abroad to earn the regime hard currency. The remainder was used to keep the economy going. Today, the number is somewhere around less than thirty thousand barrels. If even that, as the Venezuelan oil sector continues to decline, but Cuban Venezuela today still do maintain a, 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 a transactional relationship. They're far from the height of the relationship under Chavez, but Maduro does, uh, President Maduro of Venezuela does understand and see the realities of the importance of the relationship with Cuba, both for Venezuela's influence in the the Caribbean, as well as for uh, his own regime's internal security. So the Venezuelan decline in oil exports significantly hit Cuba, combined this with COVID, and then combined this with a regime that's been fundamentally unable to implement a model of reform that's been workable. It's usually referred to as two steps forward, one step back. And even though the current president, President diaz Canal, sees himself, at least he sees himself, as something of a reformist, there's quite a significant amount of internal challenges within Cuba to fulfilling that reform, and there are entrenched interests in Cuba that are doing quite well out of the current system, particularly the Cuban military.
0: We're, we're definitely going to dive into Cuba-Venille relations uh, for sure, but before we do that, I want to go back to early Cuba-USSR relations, because I'm curious, why did, why did the USSR give so much resources, economics, military, you know, to Cuba, uh, and essentially treat it as a, a, as a client state?
1: It's, it's 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 actually a really fascinating story in that as documents came to light over the last twenty years and Chinese officials have rewritten their memoirs, there really is a, a divide. There is no the Soviets aren't necessarily we're not necessarily going to have Cuba as the client state. We ultimately see the we have to go back to the Sino-Soviet split. So following the death of Stalin and the process of de-Stalinization, Khrushchev comes to power and in 1956. We get the famous speech where he denounces the crimes of Stalin and begins the process of de-Stalinization and reform, which China under Mao virulently oppose and label as being fundamentally revisionist. And we begin to see the ending of that relationship of the close Sino-Soviet alliance. It begins to ultimately deteriorate as uh, things move forward. In 1962, Khrushchev leaves power uh, and is replaced by Leonid Brezhnev. But before that, what's important to note is we do see China and the Soviet Union both looking at Cuba as a key locus for their own interests, particularly their interests against the United States because of its geographic location. And we have visits from already engagement with the Chinese government in, uh, before 1959, with, but through Cuban socialists, which eventually is purged out by Fidel Castro. And we see in 1960, uh, China basically being recognized by, by Cubans, the first state in the Western Hemisphere to recognize China. So it's the only place, and is noted in multiple memoirs, as this is the only place in the Western Hemisphere where the red flag with five stars is flying. And we see Shenzhen appointed in 1961 as the first Chinese ambassador to Cuba. Just to illustrate the level of importance that China placed on Cuba, he had previously been ambassador to India. So he's moving from an incredibly high-ranking posting to one that China clearly and very strongly valued. And we do see Chinese aid and assist enormously develop in the early 1960s. And really through Chinese purchases of Cuban sugar, Chinese exports of rice. In 1965 is really the peak of the relationship with $225 million in trade between China and Cuba, second only to the Soviet Union, but accounting for 14% of Cuba's total trade. China's providing military assistance. It provides Cuba with its most advanced anti-aircraft weapons. And some analysts have looked at it. And one of my favorite uh, quotes is that Fidel Castro's heart was in Beijing, but his stomach was in Moscow. And that ultimately, we do see a lot more uh, and a lot stronger parallels between the development and the approach taken by the Cuban Communist Party in terms of hearts and minds, social transformation, than we see in parallels to the Soviet system. It's, it's quite interesting to look at some of the events that develop in even Cuba's revolutionary offensive that took place from 68 to 71 has strong parallels to the Chinese uh, culture revolution. This is even after the, the split. What also- what we ultimately see is the Soviets are simply able to offer more to Cuba. China's not able to compete. It's, it's, it's not able to provide the military hardware. It's not able to provide the economic support that's required. Now, it, Castro had thought, as, this, as the Sino-Soviet split had, devout, had, had really become intense in the early 60s, that he would be able to play a major role, that he could play the mediator role and bring them back together and I mean, cement his place on the world stage and resolve it. When Castro dies or is removed from power, he thinks, oh, well, this should resolve things and, and things will get together. And he, it's one of his major mistakes in office is not grasping that this was not a dispute between Mao and Khrushchev. This was a dispute between two fundamentally different systems and two countries that were competing for control over global communism. And things really fall apart by 1965, where we, at the, uh, where we see Castro making public vehemently anti-Chinese speeches while Soviet-provided military hardware is parading across in the, in the main uh, square in Havana. And ultimately, in in March of 1966, as as relations continue to deteriorate, Castro makes a speech that just ultimately is is openly condemnatory of of China. Hmm.
0: Why, Why is that?
1: Trade negotiations basically fall apart, something that was called the rice affair, where Cuba goes and asks China for X amount in terms of rice exports to feed the population. China says no in light of the decline in the relationship, and the split occurs. The split is is fundamental at that point, and there's and there's no going back. Cuba's chosen the Soviet side. The Soviets are able to provide more assistance. And even though there were significant figures, the most prominent being Che Guevara, who would be the most pro-China of any of the senior leadership. It's often been discussed that Che Guevara was very much pro-China, Raul Castro much more pro-Soviet, and the Soviet camp and sort of fidel with uh, Fidel eventually making the decision based upon the economic realities of, well, the Soviets can give us more. And, And at the same time, he also looked at China... Which at that point, especially during as, the, as we move into the Cultural Revolution period, 66 to 76, where China's very actively intervening in the politics of revolution in Latin America. And this does not sit well with Castro, who very much sees himself as the undisputed leader of revolutionary communism in Latin America. And seeing China becoming... Uh,
0: okay, so... Uh, In what way was China intervening in these Latin American revolutions?
1: It would be supporting particular factions. It would be attempting to basically uh, move communist parties away from support for the Soviet Union and uh, towards support for the Chinese side. Essentially, the Sino-Soviet split and Sino-Soviet competition was globalized. And... And as China supported various entities in Latin America, this caused an enormous amount of anger on the part of Castro, who essentially saw it as, stay out of my, this is my world, stay out. And this really solidifies solidifies the divide. And at that point, we see this enormous downgrading in relations into one of based, basically gritted teeth, mutual hostility, until relations begin to rebuild following the end of the Cold War. But it's, it's, it's a story that's a lot more complex uh, than most people are aware of, just seeing the huge role that the number of back-and-forth delegations in the early 1960s, the various meetings with Zhou Lai and with Mao that did take place, and China's real view that this was a relationship that was vital and that it thought it could maintain, but ultimately it's, it's unable to do so.
0: I think most people are familiar with the Cuban Missile Crisis, with the Cuba-USSR-US standoff, but I think it's not that usually discussed about the Chinese part of this conversation where Mao, he, you know, coming to the end of the failure of the Great Leap Forward, he pivoted his foreign policy about, you know, international communism and he used the failure of the USSR to defend uh, Cuba's right to have the missiles as a wedge to put his foreign policy proposal back to the uh, the, the front line. And he used this in against, for example, Deng and, uh, Deng Xiaoping and, and Liu Xiaoqi against their more reform-minded aspects in the, in the party. And he, so he used Cuba as a flashpoint to say he still has the better version of the foreign policy. And when Cuba did actually play out, as he said, where the USSR is no longer fit for purpose, it gave him more of a domestic growth stand on. And that part of the conversation isn't really discussed too often.
1: He does use, we can look at it all in both the the sort of Chinese foreign policy context where China says, okay, the Soviets back down um, against the United States, and Fidel Castro himself loathes Khrushchev for backing down against the Americans in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Virulently, virulently opposed to Khrushchev's decisions and sees it as an enormous mistake. And this is really, following the Cuban Missile Crisis, this is really when we begin to reach the the pinnacle of, of, of positive relations between China, as both basically are thinking of global revolution, whereas the Soviets are moving more towards at least a period of detente, moving away from the extremes of Stalinism, and also dealing with the fact that their economy after years of, of, of I mean, looking at the 20s and the 30s and so Stalinist industrialization, the Khrushchev period is the beginning of what uh, we call the treadmill of reform, where the Soviets are really trying to find a way to make the system work. They never do, obviously. And and we move into what in Russian we call the era of Zastoy, of stagnation, where the Russian economy just fundamentally stagnates from the sixties until ultimately collapse in, in the late eighties really under Gorbachev and the ultimate dissolution of the Soviet Union. So that's the that's the the, the, the basics of, of, of where it goes is this this this, this 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 revolutionary divide and for the sake of Cuba it's 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 it really does lean towards China in the in the response and the thought is well now that Khrushchev's gone all of this anti-Stalinist stuff will be over and it'll return to normal under Brezhnev which of course it doesn't and Castro just fundamentally reads the, misreads the situation as to how all of this will develop and ultimately ends up siding with the Soviets on a purely practical level so it's the economic aid and so on yeah absolutely it's 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 enormous it's. It's, it's, re- it's really just uh, the Cuban economy since, since the revolution has never stood on its own two feet. It's always had it's always had a patron. It's always had a patron. We ultimately see following the revolution, we see the first year or so, and there's a debate as to which direction Cuban economic policy should take. Should it take a gradualist approach, which some people in the party were advocating, and others saying, oh no, we need to plough forward and follow the Chinese model as revolutionary as possible. This is very much Che Guevara's economic, which was developed. And because of the view that, well, on one side you have folks saying Cuba's not ready for communism. On another, you have, well, this is we should we should take the revolutionary road and we should take this as extreme as possible. But Cuba is ultimately fully dependent upon external patrons for its entire economic history. And when it doesn't have one, scary things begin to happen, which goes back to when we were discussing the question of the special period. And when the Soviet Union wasn't there, 91 to 2000, and then who steps in? Venezuela. And things begin to get significantly better because of huge amounts of oil.
0: Venezuela and Cuba. So Venezuela, for for a while had ambitions of you know geopolitics in the Caribbean. This goes back to, you know, Rafael Caldera, former president of Venezuela back in the seventies. He had a foreign policy of Caribbean, which is like a counter somewhat to a similar to the Caribbean based initiative from the US, similarly, but he thinks the Venezuela is truly a Caribbean state, so he has more more um, claim to the Caribbean supremacy. But in, in that vein, why did Chavez give so much money to Castro? Was it because of a larger geopolitical grand strategy? Was it because of ideology of socialism, we are both together in the struggle against imperial powers? Or was it something something else?
1: It's a great question, because uh, a lot of folks look at the relationship and see it as, yes, they do. So, Hugo Chavez first goes to Cuba in 1994, and this is not—he doesn't really become much in the eyes of the Cuban government until he assumes the presidency, until he takes, until he takes power, at which point Castro um, almost acts as a father figure to him in terms of how he should how he should operate what he should do etc the key moment the ultimate major moment is in 2002 when there is an attempted coup against 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 chavez it's castro who basically is on the phone and has walked Chavez through how to deal with this and how to, yeah, it's, and it is something that is never forgotten. It is, it, it, it just binds these two guys incredibly, incredibly closely. And that's the point. Where we see the beginning of 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 this incredibly close relationship that at least lasts until Chavez's death and Alt and, and Cuba's and, and 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 Castro's death. Castro's death. Where we see again two thousand two. This is when we start seeing the hundred thousand barrels of oil going going there. So there is a personal relationship between the two leaders. There's also the strong ideological relationship. The idea of a region wide revolution. And it's important to note. I mean, Venezuela historically has been something of the regional hegemon in, North, in, northern, uh, Latin, in northern South America and in the Caribbean simply due to its sheer size and the fact that Mexico does not take on that role. Mexico generally takes on a sort of we stay out of it approach to the, to, uh, the Caribbean and to northern Latin America in general. So Venezuela was the country that, ironically, under previous governments, was the one pushing back communist revolutionary movements across the region. So the idea of Cuba and Venezuela allied together, and the formation of ALBA, of all the alliance, the the Bolivarian Alliance uh, for Latin America, which starts with Venezuela and Cuba, there are ideological parallels, and there is a close ideological sense. So we've got personal relationships, we've got ideology, and then we have the real nuts and bolts of transactions. For the Cubans, it's economic support. Cuba's found its new patron. Cuba's able to get out of the special period. And for Venezuela, it's learning how to run an authoritarian, which is not easy. And we see ultimately the drawing down of the prior American military presence in Venezuela. And this is replaced with an enormous uh, number. The estimates very wildly as to the number of Cuban military personnel and the number of Cuban security personnel in Venezuela over time. Today, it's significantly lower than it was at its peak. But we do know that these are the officials that trained uh, a large amount, essentially trained the Venezuelan internal security in terms of how to maintain control, maintain maintain control. And we see Chavez taking more and more former Cuban officials as part of his sort of key inner circle. And adapting his own system, the idea of the Bolivarian circles, etc., are, which are a key sort of local government, a part of maintaining control, which completely are identical to the Committees for the Defense of the Revolution that Castro set up in Cuba. So it's 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 really threefold. It's personal, it's ideological, and it's practical and transactional. At this point, the personal is obviously gone, and the ideological is still there to a great extent. But the transactional is significantly on the decline as Venezuela's economy collapses and Cuba's economy collapses. And we do see fewer military personnel. We do see fewer Cuban medical personnel, etc. As, as 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 that relationship uh, develops.
0: You mentioned earlier that it was. Guevara who was more pro-China and Raul Castro was more pro-USSR, but then Raul Castro became the president of Cuba after after Fidel Castro. So how was the Cuba-China relations under the Raul Castro period?
1: We see the we we see the relationship. There's really no one, it's hard to date when we sort of see the improvement of the relationship. It's in in between the two. We see in the 90s and the 2000s and so on and so forth as China sort of expands globally, we do see a gradual improvement in trade and an investment over time. It's not really, though, until the last, so it would be the Raul Castro years, the last decade or so where we start seeing uh, significant trade with China becoming in recent years one of Cuba's uh, top five, I believe, the last year or so, the top three partners. Cuban Chinese trade has collapsed in the last two years. It was down forty percent in 2020. Not for any, not necessarily uh, just because of COVID. but We saw Chinese trade with the rest of Latin America only really decline by about one percent. But because Cuba can't pay is 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 the reality. Is that is, is Cuba's broke. And, uh, and folks on the ground basically saying, well, what's the, what, why isn't China doing more? Why aren't Chinese businesses doing more? And there is, there is a Chinese presence. There is a significant Chinese presence. But it essentially comes down to Chinese businesses want to be paid. And the Chinese government is not willing to subsidize it. It's not willing to basically step in and, and pay those bills that need to be paid. And that's, that's a huge challenge for the, for the regime.
0: So it's not likely that China will become a new patron for Cuba.
1: In, in my view, Cuba had very much hoped for that. Cuba had very much desired that that would be the reality, that it, that, that Cuba, that China was going to be the third patron, etc. But that has not come to fruition. We ha- we did see the celebration of, of the relationship and, and decades of, of ties, despite the long period of mutual loathing. But China hasn't come in with an enormous bailout package for this. We have seen Cuba is part of the Belt and Road Initiative. It signs up in 2018. And we do see a major Chinese investment. We see the port in Santiago de Cuba at $120 million. We see significant investment in pharmaceuticals. We did initially see some collaboration on the development of a drug to fight COVID. But we're not seeing China come in. And that's not saying China still can't, but that that option is not there in light of the increasing tension between the U.S. and China. Although that would be, and, and some folks have looked at this and have said, well, this is a perfect opportunity for China to raise the stakes by engaging with Cuba. Although even at this stage, it's, it's obviously very difficult to predict what the government of, of, of President Xi Jinping, which seems to be getting more aggressive by the day, is is willing to do. But taking it to that level would seriously heightened tension with the United States. And China's always, you can say many things about the Chinese Communist Party, but historically, it's been very good at knowing its history. And no one wants Cuban Missile Crisis Part 2, the closest we've ever come to extinction as a species. And we don't know precisely what would happen. Folks have drawn the parallel saying Cuba could be China's Taiwan because of its its location and the threat that it would pose to the United States but so far we haven't seen any concrete moves in that direction by by China
0: How likely do you think reforms will happen politically economically in Cuba No that DS Canal is the head of state
1: I think it is interested in, I think we saw that with, with, with the change in the Cuban peso, and we saw it with, with the much-needed dumping of, of the dual currency system, which was, which was a significant challenge, and as and as a, as a uh, I forward. think
0: you should explain the dual currency system in Cuba. I think most people would not be very familiar with it.
1: Yes, so Cuba maintains a very, has, went from a country that used both the Cuban peso, which is non-convertible as a currency. To utilizing both the internal Cuban peso for internal usage, and then a the convertible peso or the CUP, uh, C-U-P which with a ratio of one domestic peso roughly to 24 coup, And so you had essentially two economies side by side, one where the coup essentially was utilized among foreigners who were traveling within Cuba, and they convert dollars or euros or, or, or pounds on arrival or do business. And this causes a huge amount of, of confusion and transaction and creates really a dual economy, those who have access to that currency and those that, that don't. And reforming that and moving away from that was, was, it, was a good step. But overall, I do think the regime would be is open to reform, or is at least realizes that uh, it's the current model isn't working, and, there, and that we are in something of special period too. And I, and 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 the the uh, the the riots we've seen in Cuba, the protests are are. Partially an outcome of that. There's there's several other factors as well. But the other challenge is is the as the Cuban economy did make some changes in the 2000s. Most of foreign direct investments is heavily filtered through the uh, the Cuban military. And if you if you look at the beautiful hotels that tourists stay in, these are owned by branches of the Cuban military. And Cuban military officers have very much done quite well out of this out of this new system and so there are significant impediments to reform there are key, key factions that do not want to see change so there is cuba's own internal politics of is will it be able to carry this out it never did it in the 1990s everyone thought that that, that it was going to have to do it but then it found a new patron in venezuela so it never had to really make the reforms that that the cuban economy requires to, to function
0: there's quite a lot of discussion on the embargo, the U.S. embargo on Cuba. How sound is the argument that if the U.S. lifts the embargo, then the Cuban economy will be able to recover? Do you give any, any credibility at all to, to that argument?
1: Is, is the embargo a good thing? In my view, no. I think the embargo's been ineffective. It's 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 something that I I personally support uh, repealing. But the United States is not the only country in the world that Cuba can trade with. There's over 190 other countries that Cuba can engage in economic relations with. And placing all the blame on the United States I think fundamentally misreads and ignores Cuban economic history. That Cuba didn't make the reforms that China and Vietnam made in the 1990s. It didn't open up. Its its process of privatization was incredibly helter skelter, back and forth. Some things are open for private investment, then sometimes they're closed, with no consistency whatsoever. Cuban business practices have been noted widely as being just uh, so off the charts, inconsistent that foreign direct investors are regularly scared away. So, is the U.S. embargo something that has had a major impact? Not, not particularly. It's, 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 it's not. Uh, it's a great argument. That the regime consistently relies on, but that oh, it's all the it's all because of the embargo. It's all because of the embargo. Um well, the history doesn't really show that. The, the history seems to show that uh, it's sort of the old Soviet joke of, of, oh, agricultural production has just been bad because we've had 70 years of bad weather. Um, and that's why the grain harvest has been so poor. But the Cuban economy doesn't, uh, should be relatively consistent if it's all about the embargo. If the embargo is the single overwhelming determining factor, we shouldn't see special period one and special period two, which was what we're in, we're in now. Rather, we're seeing, we see an economic model that doesn't work and that's reliant on sub and the removal of, of, of the U.S. embargo would have a positive effect. It would have a positive effect, but also could cause enormous destabilization for the regime. Re- regime as well. If we decide to fully open, I mean, you want to fully open Cuba to U.S. trade and investment and 2.5 million Cuban Americans, what that could do in terms of the divide in Cuba, in terms of Cuba's own internal politics. Reform is incredibly difficult to carry out and maintain control. And even lifting of the embargo and a full lift of the embargo and a full opening to American investment would create further challenges to the regime, just as the introduction of the Internet and, and social media is a key factor in the, in, the, in the riots and the protests, as information is now able to spread much more rapidly, which is also an aspect that hasn't been, uh, well, the, well, the economics of contemporary Cuba, I see, is a key of, of current events in Cuba. The fact that uh, you now have smartphones and access to social media, this is an enormous change. And it's not something where the government can immediately put a lid on things.
0: Cuba is one of the last five officially communist countries. I'm curious how the other ones think about Cuba. Uh, are, is there any like, strong economic relationship between them?
1: So we've got we're down to pretty much okay. Let's start with the easy one, Laos. Where yeah, no, Laos does not have a significant relationship with with, with Cuba. It's a relatively small landlocked country, and while I'm sure there's party to party contact, etc., there's economic relationship or otherwise is is minimal. Conversely, Vietnam continues to maintain very close ties to Cuba and to the Cuban government and is a very strong supporter, stemming from its period as an ally of the Soviet Union and thus a close ally of, 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 of Cuba. And that relationship continues. We see regular exchanges, discussion, although Vietnam doesn't have nearly the trade relationship with, with Cuba that China does. There is still a very, very close relationship between the leaderships of, of, of those two countries. North Korea is something of a mystery, but we do know that there is a relationship there. We've seen issues of trade and, and, and illicit trade in certain goods over the years to uh, between the two. So there is a relationship between North Korea. But at the end of the day it's 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 really just it's it's China and Vietnam that are the two that matter
0: there's an idea in general policy circles that you know, China keeps a very close eye on these uprisings in other communist authoritarian countries, so you know they're communists we're communists actual uprising potential uprising uh, what do you think with that
1: I think China in my view looking at China's current policy of and it's current approach yes china looks at as i think really all authoritarian regimes do keep a close eye on okay when is there a quote unquote color revolution or when does an authoritarian regime fall what are the dynamics behind that what can we learn from it and so on and so forth the situation in china is fundamentally different from the situation in cuba where china's economy has significantly recovered and it's experienced huge amounts of growth and over the course of uh, a key pillar of its national legitimacy for china i think right now the key Question is, and it's been very interesting to see as Xi Jinping has consolidated power, and we've seen other factions in the party wither away and die uh, or be convicted of corruption, strategically so. We've ultimately are looking at the question for China of like, keeping the party in line and Xi being able to more fully consolidate its power. Willie Wolap Lam, one of my favorite commentators on China, recently was uh, discussing this on articles coming out in major Chinese publications about inner party discipline and the importance of of remembering the, the, these historic lessons from the Maoist period, and the, as she abrogated the system of collective leadership and the model of regular leadership transition, he's in uncharted territory here. He he destroyed the system that Deng Xiaoping very wisely established for a stable authoritarian regime. What happens after Xi Jinping is a is a significant is a significant question. Now he's still not that old. Uh, and he's looking to stay in power until his health runs out. But China would be looking at it more as 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 okay, this is something that's going on. Where is Cuba going to go? But they, I don't think they'd be seeing parallels to any any sort of popular unrest within China itself.
0: So, neo cold war rhetoric is all the rage these days in in policy circles, in particular in in the U.S. Uh, what do you think about this idea of a new cold war?
1: I love this question because I hate the term "the new Cold War." I think it's fundamentally a, it's fundamentally ahistorical and depicts an enormous enormous amount of ignorance by those that use it. And and just for for your for 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 the listeners, the single best argument against it was presented by Tom Christensen, the former I believe Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian Affairs. He published in for East, East Asian Affairs rather. He published an article about a month or two ago in Foreign Affairs that completely decimates the argument that a new Cold War exists. In my view, which which although I think Christensen's argument is, 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 is genius and is a, is, a, is a must read, I would say that the, 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 there's some key difference. The, the differences are huge. On the one hand, we don't see a truly global. China is a regional actor. It is not a global actor. It does not have the capability to compete with the United States at a global level. Rather it's openly said consistently it's seeking regional hegemony in Asia, in East and Southeast Asia, rather than global global hegemony. It doesn't have the ability to do so at this stage. Now, eventually, perhaps. But now, no. Now China's not even able to fully take hegemony in Asia. There's that's why we have sino-American competition here in the region. Is the U.S. is still here, and the U.S. still is sailing the Seventh Fleet of the Pacific Fleet through the South China Sea on a regular basis, and building cooperation with Japan, Australia, South Korea, India, and so on and so forth. So it's it's it, China's not it's not a global action. At the same time, China's not a missionary country in terms of trying to spread its ideology of of, of 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 its own party. I mean, because what ideology is there? The Soviet Union was spreading the gospel of communism. I mean China's not spreading the gospel of communism. It, it's 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 still nominally obviously a communist state. It's a in my view a neo totalitarian state. In terms of the level of social control and and the policies that it's implemented, and I would go so far to say that it it can qualify in terms of its increasing ethno nationalism, its policies against the Uyghurs, its policies against the Tibetans, against the Mongolians, and just over the last two years against its Korean minority, which makes is absolutely shocking. is 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 something of an even neo fascist state based upon ethnic chauvinism, based upon the English translation from the Chinese would be great Han chauvinism and a Han-centric view. And you're not going to find a lot of places in the rest of the world where your national ideology of our ethnic group is great is really going to catch on in terms of in terms of support. It's one of the reasons that China has reached out in its united front work overseas, initially reached out heavily to the ethnic Chinese population. Primarily, we're seeing huge amounts of pushback globally from on BRI, from local local populations. And so ideologically, China has nothing to offer contra the existing the existing model, the, the system set up following the end of the Cold War that's brought prosperity to hundreds of millions of people, including hundreds of millions of Chinese. So we're just not the dynamics just aren't there. It's 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 and and I I just I recently published a piece going all the way back to George Kennan's famous long telegram from Moscow, which really sort of kicks off the idea of containment and 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 is is one of the early points of the Cold War, which we just don't see the parallel. And it's it is an ahistorical reading. We need to come up with a different way to conceptualize the competition between the U.S. and China as, as a new Cold War, which really brings in discourse and rhetoric that don't help. It, 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 it seems to imply that war is, is inevitable. At the same time, if we look at Cold War history, there was very clear boundaries. John Lewis Gaddis, the premier historian of the Cold War, looks at bipolarity and, and that situation as being one of providing an, an intense amount of actual stability, that there was clear lines of who had what sphere of influence of, of what not to do and what you could do and where you should act and where you can't act without provoking the other team. And right now, those lines are not clear. Taiwan being a case in point where China continues to saber rattle, the U.S. continues to basically say, yeah, we'll support Taiwan. If, if we were in a real Cold War or it hit that point, we would have clearer lines, clear clearer issues. Um, but we're just not there. That's not to say that it's not possible that elements that the uh, elements of that elements of the of the cold war could 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 arise in the context of growing sino-chinese uh, sino-american competition but structurally as a term other generally i reject it i, I don't think it's i don't think it's an apt description
0: okay so it's just my last question from the viewpoint of the caribbean countries how do you see the caribbean foreign policy or caribbean policy in general uh, adjusting towards the new reality of increased u s china competition
1: I think it 's going to be interesting the u s is now talking about, and it was really interesting to see initial discussions of the u s finally developing a real Caribbean policy in that the u s has not had a serious Caribbean policy for quite a lengthy period of time now i can 't even recall the last time i would I could view a U.S. Caribbean policy that was coherent, as opposed to sort of ad hoc and responding to various issues. But issues in the region itself, in, in 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 Haiti as well as in Cuba, have put this to the front burner, even though it was already being discussed. For you, for the context of China, China obviously has extended BRI into the region, and that is and uh, Huawei, of course, the continued question of technological competition. We'll likely see both China and the U.S. continue to make the argument of we're not asking anyone demanding that anyone pick sides, while countries very much feel that's not the case, that they are being pressured uh, by both sides to, to choose which which block they're going to go with. And for the Caribbean, it's, 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 it's going to be a very interesting period to see As on the one side, China's BRI model continues and it develops, China's recognized that there have been problems with the Belt and Road Initiative, and it released a white paper in January of this year setting out its new aid policy, which is very much worth reading, recognizing that it needs better quality it needs better transparency. Will those solutions actually take place? We don't know, but China does recognize there are issues with it. But it is going to plow forward at the same time the United States is rolling out globally this we've heard from now the build back better world program as well as the billions of dollars the US has decided to allocate as it changed OPEC into this massive support for global American investment to counter Chinese global so for the Caribbean it's and for, for smaller countries in general One of the most unique things about great power competition is, yes, there's a huge amount of danger involved, particularly if you happen to be a a location where proxy wars or conflict could take place. But there's also an enormous amount of advantage. And if we do look back, I think one of the only areas, saying again, there are lessons we can learn from the Cold War that are applicable today. We look back to aid policy during the Cold War. And countries basically going to between shuttling between the Americans and the Soviets and going to Washington and asking for $50 million for a new dam and Washington saying no. And then, well, maybe we'll go to Moscow. Maybe we'll visit the Russians uh, and see what they have on offer. Um, So there is four countries that are seeking aid and investment, something of an opportunity to play one side against the other and try to get the best deal, try to get the best amount of aid, try to get the best amount of investment, try to get the best trade arrangements, where if we are back in viewing this and in viewing U.S.-Chinese competition in a classic capital R realism model, a world of where everything is a zero-sum game, and any gain by China is a loss for the U.S. Any gain by the U.S. is a loss for China. This is where smaller states start having significantly more leverage uh, than previously, as there is an alternative. And that is one question as to, it'll be very interesting to see which governments are the most successful at leveraging this situation into getting the best deals possible. So that is going back and kind of just tying it into the previous question. That is a Cold War lesson that is is useful here. And, and uh, I think we're going to be seeing more of it. As 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 countries sort of cotton on to the fact that this is there, there are options here, and and it could result in some significant uh, improvements uh, to their own economy.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Merton. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation.
1: Thank you, Rashid. It's been my pleasure. Really appreciate talking to you. Marcernián Arena, como sacudí el jibe, a Chan Chan le daba pena.